What is up, my dudes? Welcome back to Olympia Oddities. I know it's been a while since I put an episode out. I said that I was going to get back on a more regular schedule, and then I immediately was like, just kidding. Um, I was house-sitting, and also my dog Nacho has some weird medical condition going on with his eye, so I was trying to house-sit, take care of my animals at work, take care of all my animals, and also, like, put drops in his eye twice a day, two different kinds of drops. He had, like, three different kinds of medicine he had to take. So yeah, it was overwhelming to try to do like podcast stuff on top of that, but we're back. I'm really excited to talk about what we're talking about in this episode today, and I can't wait to share it with you guys. Um, Just a warning that there will be um, not like a graphic depiction of sexual assault, but it's definitely part of the story. Just a warning, and I will get into some of like the crime scene and like the position of the body and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're sensitive... I don't know what you're listening to this true crime podcast for, but I just wanted to, you know, give you guys a warning before we jump into what we're going to jump into. So today, we're going to be talking about the story of Mia Zapata, the front woman for the amazing Seattle band, The Gits. Mia was born to Donna and Richard Zapata on August 25th, 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. They were an upper-middle-class family and lived in the city's affluent Douglas Hills neighborhood, east of town. She had a brother and a sister, Kristen and Eric. Her parents worked as broadcasting executives, and that's how they were able to afford their nice and cozy lifestyle that they provided for their family. As a young kid, Mia showed talent in poetry, music, and art. Her parents were supportive of her interests in these subjects. By the age of nine, she could play both the guitar and the piano. Her musical influences included Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Jimmy Reed, Ray Charles, Hank Williams, and Sam Cooke. She had long, lanky legs and knock knees that earned her the nickname Chicken Woman. As an adult, she would get a chicken tattooed on her leg, which I just think that's so cute. Like, that's such a like adorable nickname and like such a cute little tattoo idea. Her parents divorced, and her dad moved to Yakima, Washington, but he visited the family often. She went to high school at the Presentation Academy. She was quiet and sensitive, but opinion- opinionated and never shy to argue for her beliefs. Mia's school friends and schoolmates would recall that even outside the classroom, she was happy to sit alone while sketching, painting, listening to music, reading a book, or composing poetry. And it seemed like she was sort of, like, not necessarily, like, an outsider-outsider at school, like, where you got, like, bullied and stuff. She was just more of the type where it's like, eh, well, I'd just kind of rather be alone, like, working on my own stuff. And I'm like, can relate. Relate to that pretty hard. Though she was raised in a life of wealth, Mia rejected materialism and a homeowner's association type life. As her father described it, Mia lived in two different worlds. She lived on two different sides of the streets, the straight side on one with patriarchal schools and affluent family and tennis clubs. But when she crossed the street, material things didn't mean anything to her. In 1984, Zapata enrolled at Antioch College located in Yellow Springs, Ohio, as a liberal arts student. For the first time, she was living away from home, And although it took a while to adjust to all of the new faces, she began making new casual acquaintances and finding her way around the local venues that had shows. She soon became part of the local punk rock scene and was joining bands on stage for a song or two. She had a powerful electric voice with matching stage presence, so she started gaining attention. Her father once commented on the change between the quieter offstage Mia and the powerhouse of Mia on stage. She really came alive. In 1986, she and three friends formed The Gits, with guitarist Joe Spleen, drummer Steve Moriarty, and bassist Matt Dresner, also students at Antioch University. 
The Gits made an impression on fellow Antioch student Valerie Agnew, who later co-founded the Seattle band Seven Year Bitch. Most good performers make they f- make you feel like they're singing to you or understand your pain, Agnew said. That was Mia's gift. In 1989, the same year that Nirvana's first album, Knock Off Melvin Sludge Bleach, was released, the Gits decided to try their luck in Seattle. Mia headed out to Seattle first, knowing that her father was close by in Yakima, in case anything were to fall through. The rest of the band followed her shortly after, moving into a house they called the Rat House. It was their practice space, along with Seven Year Bitch, DC Rat House, and a few other bands. The first week of January 1990 was when the Gits played their first Seattle show. We didn't fit in when we got there, Moriarty Moriarty recalls, so we had to form our own scene, play our own shows. I think we would have liked the attention of a record label and to be one of the cool kids on the block. But we weren't. We had to forge our own path. They soon played up and down the West Coast, playing shows with Nirvana, Sublime, Beck, and Green Day. They went on a successful tour in 1990 as well, spreading the word about their band and all without the support of a record label. Although the group was 75% men, the band as a whole, and Mia in particular, gained quite a following amongst the feminist community of Seattle. The Gits are often grouped in with the Riot Girl movement due to their sound location and friendships with local Riot Girl band Seven Year Bitch, who they often played shows with. But they're really not, you know? They're kind of like their own thing. They don't really fit into that grunge sound. They don't really fit into that Riot Girl sound. They're just a really good band, honestly. And if you haven't heard their music, you should definitely go check out. Um, Probably start with Another Shot of Whiskey, because that song is just kick-ass. Although drugs were a constant presence in the streets of Seattle, Mia really never fell into any of those crowds. She would smoke the occasional joint, but mainly she just drank. Because of Mia's strong willpower, many drug addicts approached her for advice, and she soon acquired a number of new friends who found her to be both supportive and inspiring, and now credit her for helping them finally overcome their struggles with drugs. One such person was Stephanie Sargent, the guitarist and co-founder of Seven Year Bitch. Stephanie was using heroin when they met, but they bonded despite of the issue, becoming very good friends, often hanging out together when they weren't performing. Kurt Cobain, the singer, guitarist, and songwriter for Nirvana, also became a close friend of Mia's for pretty much the same reasons, and they all supported one another's bands whenever possible. The Gits made plans to start recording sessions for a new album, along with a West Coast tour, but on June 27, 1992, They received some awful news that rocked them as well as the entire Seattle music scene. Mia's friend Stephanie Sargent was dead. Stephanie had passed out on her back after returning home from a party where she had drank and taken a small amount of heroin. She died of asphyxiation when she failed to wake up after vomiting. She was 24. The tour was postponed as the group concentrated on performing and writing new material. In 1992, the band released its debut album, Frenching the Bully. The album had hits such as Another Shot of Whiskey, Second Skin, and Here's to Your Fuck, receiving positive reviews. Their reputation positively increased within the Seattle grunge scene, and they began working on their second album, Enter the Conquering Chicken, the name being a nod to Mia's childhood nickname. Throughout recording the uh, second album, the band had planned a large US and European tour, as as well as many local shows, all while being courted by various record labels. They'd even booked their first show in New York City. Unfortunately, Tragedy would strike the band before this could happen. On July 6th, 1993, Mia woke up at around 11 a.m. She met up with her dad, who had driven in to buy her lunch and discuss her future. Afterwards, they shopped at Tower Records and then drove to the city's art museum. Her dad left around 3 p.m., and Mia's roommates confirmed that he returned Mia to her apartment in Rainier Valley, where she did some laundry and then walked the dog. 
At 6.30, she showed up to a small studio in the Winston Apartments on East Pike Street to rehearse with a band called Hell's Smells, great band name, a group that included musician Robert Jenkins, a man that Mia had been dating that year but wasn't currently dating. And I think anyone who spends enough time in, like, a music scene knows that exact, like, weird dynamic. At approximately 8.30pm, she entered the Comet Tavern, where she was well known to all of the regular patrons due to it being a common gathering place for many local band members. At around midnight, Mia announced that she was headed off to confront Robert and walked out alone into the Seattle streets. She was wearing shorts and big black boots. She found his studio empty, so she, instead she visited the second floor residence of Tracy Victoria Kinley, nicknamed TV, who was the singer for Jenkins Group, and was invited in to chat for a while. Because she didn't have a driver's license, Mia occasionally hailed cabs, but more often she would walk or catch rides with friends, so TV didn't give it much of a thought when she declined her host's offer to stay for the night. She remained until 2 a.m. on July 7th before leaving the apartment building. This was the last time that Mia would be seen alive. So this next part is where it gets pretty rough, and so not to get too personal, but it's my podcast and I can talk about whatever I want. Um, I'm going through therapy right now. I'm doing EMDR therapy for, like, a traumatic thing that happened to me. So I have, like, a lot of, like, raw emotions, and the story really hit a nerve. It's part of the reason I put it off for so long. I wanted to make sure I was in the right headspace to do it. Um, I'm going to try to get through this without choking up, but I might, and if I do, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. This week. The Seattle police received a call around 3.30 of a young female lying on the pavement of a dead-end street at 24th Avenue South between South Yesler and South Washington Streets. Mia had been found by Charity Viles, a sex worker in the area, and reported it to the fire department, who then called the police. Paramedics arrived but were unable to resuscitate Mia. She was 27 years old. When Zapata didn't show up for a recording session at the studio later that morning, concerned friends contacted the hospital and then the police. Then somebody had the nerve to call the morgue, Moriarty recalls, and the medical examiner, who was a music fan and had seen the gits, said, It's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone to come down and identify her. It was a lifelong traumatic moment. Only half-dressed, she'd been laid out in a grotesque mox crucifixion pose with her ankles crossed and arms stretched out at her side. Mia's sweatshirt was pulled up underneath her arms, and her hood was tied tightly around her face and knotted under her throat. She'd been strangled to death with the cord of her own black gits hoodie. I don't know why that part gets me so hard. Like, I just... Imagine putting all your life's work into, like, a band and then just getting murdered by some shithole dude with, like, your own status. With, like, your own symbol of, like, your power. I don't know. Just pull it together, Trista. Pull it together. Her underwear, bra, and torn... Er, her underwear wallet and torn bra were stuffed into the pocket of her jeans. There was motor oil on her pants and grass in her pockets. She may have been killed in a car or in a field and left on the street. According to court documents, an autopsy found evidence of a struggle in which Zapata suffered blunt impact to her abdomen and a lacerated liver. According to the medical examiner, if she had not been strangled, she would have died from the internal injuries suffered from the beating. It was apparent that the crime had probably occurred at some unknown location and that the assailant or assailants had simply dumped her body in a spot where it might remain undiscovered for hours, allowing plenty of time for them to flee. Despite a thorough search of the area, Detective Tom Pike of the Seattle Police Homicide Unit noted that little forensic evidence was found. 
This particular investigation has been difficult because we're faced with a situation where we don't know where the actual crime scene was where the murder took place. We obviously only know where we found Mia, which we don't believe is the same. DNA samples extracted from the bite marks were examined and the resulting profile was checked against the FBI's DNA record of other violent criminals, but DNA technology was in its infancy and no all-inclusive national DNA database existed. Robert Jenkins, Mia's ex just prior to her death, seemed truly troubled by her violent murder and volunteered hair and blood samples for DNA testing, also submitting to two lie detector tests, all of which he passed with flying colors. And we know that like lie detectors tests are like kind of like junk uh science a little bit like they're not admissible in court or anything but i don't know so i don't put much weight in that but like he didn't have anything to do with this spoiler his alibi was also pretty solid as he spent most of the day rehearsing with his band and most of the evening with his group of friends before sharing the night with his new girlfriend weeks after formal investigations began interrogations with mia's friends had given no clues and the case was classified as a cold case there was simply not a lot of evidence at all, said King County Judge Timothy Bradshaw, who handled the murder case as one of the prosecutors at the time. It was every scenario we could possibly imagine. Nothing was narrowed. One strongly held popular local opinion was that the murderer must be the serial killer that the press had nicknamed the Green River Killer. A mysterious predator who'd been killing young women, mainly sex workers, in the Seattle-Tacoma area since the early 1980s, Although still at large in the 1990s, police remained unconvinced that there was any connection. Fuck Gary Ridgway. I hate Gary Ridgway so much. I have, like, almost a personal beef with him just because, ugh, he's just such a fucking ugh of a person. And ugh, I've been putting off doing an episode on him just because I hate him so much. But yeah, didn't have anything to do with this one. While the police might have designated the murder as a cold case, the Seattle music community banded together to do all they could to catch the killer. The Seattle music community, including its most famous bands, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, probably heard of one of those, <laughs> helped raise $70,000 to hire a private investigator for three years, which is pretty impressive. The funds dried up without any major breaks in the case, but the investigator, Lee Huron, continued to investigate on her own time. However, there was a burning paranoia within the scene that the killer could have been one of their own. The shocking murder shattered the innocence and carefree vibe of the Seattle music community. Mia's murder put an unbreakable pall on our tight-knit community, Dresner says. There was definitely a sense of fear and suspicion, based largely on the fact that the police had no leads to find her murderer. I felt like everyone was coming up with theories and conspiracies about who killed Mia, with a lot of our close friends becoming suspects of the Se Seattle Police Department and or the community. It sucked. Only five weeks after Mia's fatal abduction, a woman was walking along the street after dark in the same area of Capitol Hill when she encountered a man driving past her several times before he slowed down to offer her a ride, but she realized his zipper was down and turned away to call 911, causing him to speed away before the police could arrive. Unbelievably, the authorities took the woman's story, along with the description of the driver and his license plate number, but told her that without any eyewitnesses, there was little that they could do except for file an incident report to be away to be on the official record just in case of a reoccurrence where it's like <laughs> seattle pd back at it again just doing the damn thing just and by the damn thing i mean absolutely nothing <sighs> in 1998 after five years of investigation seattle police detective dale tallman said 
we're no closer to solving the case than we were right after the murder. For the next six years, not a single shred of new evidence came to light, despite the facts of the case being spotlighted on a number of true crime television shows, including Unsolved Mysteries, 48 Hours, The Investigators, Forensic Files, Unsolved Mysteries, American Justice, City Confidential, and iDetective, not to mention the occasional article concerning the case in modern crime magazines. In 2001, Seattle homicide detectives Greg Mixell and Richard Gagnon decided to reopen the case after they'd been on a successful recent run of cracking other cold cases. This is where the DNA collected at the crime scene comes in. A DNA profile was extracted from the saliva found on Zapata's body and kept in cold storage, but now they had a new method of examining it. So, I get to play Bill Nye the Science Guy for a second and try to like explain this, but I have a weak, very basic understanding of like genetics and DNA because I'm not a scientist. I didn't go to science school. Okay, so the method is called STR technology or short tandem repeat analysis. So basically a locus or loci, if you're talking about more than one, are fixed positions on a chromosome, like the position of a gene or a gene marker. STR analysis is used to compare specific loci on DNA from two or more samples. So we can all walk away today learning a little bit more or saying that we know a little bit more about DNA. And I don't know if that's right, but that was my understanding of it. So this time they had a DNA match, Jesus Mezquia. The investigative team also discovered that for several months in 1993, Mezquia had been living in Seattle with a girlfriend who had convinced him to move there with her while she applied for jobs in the area. At first, they'd stayed with her mother in the Beacon Hill section of the city, where a neighbor remembered him as being temperamental, distant, eerily imposing, and seemingly without a job of his own because he was home so often. The couple soon moved into an apartment near Leshy Park, where another neighbor remembers Mezquia as being antisocial, strangely evasive, and even suspiciously protective of his past history, revealing only vague details when brought up in casual conversation. She also echoed the other neighbor's claims that he was a temperamental man, adding that after one particularly heated argument, his neighbor or his girlfriend had confided in her that she was unhappy with him and planning on breaking it off. At one point in the summer of 1993, after Mezquia's girlfriend had failed to land a certain job she'd been seeking, the couple stopped dating, yet continued to briefly live together until he got his own car, which allowed him to go first to California before moving back to Florida. And then because of Florida's new felony laws, he was placed on probation and forced to submit a DNA sample that was entered into the criminal file databanks of state and FBI computers. The two cheek swabs he submitted matched the DNA found at the crime scene of Mia's murder. A review of police records from the period of the suspect's residence in Seattle revealed that the license plate number reported to 911 by the woman just after Mia's murder was traceable to the address where Mezquia had been living at the time. He had a history of violence towards women, including domestic abuse, kidnapping and false imprisonment, concealing, carrying concealed weapons, assault and battery, resisting arrest, and robbery. Every single one of his exes had filed a restraining order against him. Bradshaw and the Seattle investigative team traveled to Miami and performed, performed surveillance on Mezquia. He was later detained by Florida authorities and interrogated by the Seattle investigators. He repeatedly denied any connection to the crime under questioning, and when presented with several crime scene photos, including ones of Mia, he claimed not to recognize any of the murdered women, though he acknowledged he was in Seattle then. He began calm and cooperative until being asked whether he raped or killed anyone in Seattle, said Bradshaw. 
At that point, he then stood, extended his arms, and loudly declared, See, I'm not shaking. I tell the truth. I filed murder first-degree charges immediately upon returning to Seattle. Mezquia was later extradited to Seattle to face trial. There was so much evidence to Mezquia's violent nature that it took a year for the FBI, Florida detectives, and Seattle's cold case team to build their first-degree murder case against him due to the task of determining what would be admissible in court. When the initial hearing got underway, he maintained his innocence, exercised his right to remain silent by choosing not to testify, and opted for a jury trial that began in Seattle on March 8, 2004. The panel was asked by King County Deputy Prosecutors Tim Bradshaw and Steve Fogg to consider the suspect's denial and cold uncooperation during the investigation process, and cited the special circumstances of the brutality of the attack on the petite 5'8", victim by the six four six foot four inch 240 pound uh, attacker during the trial after the state had rested its case a woman valentina de Keco, came forward and uh, alleged that mezquia had assaulted her about six months after zapata's murder she did not report the incident at the time but after he was charged with the murder and she saw his photograph in the newspaper she contacted the seattle police Dikeko said that in January 1994, at around 4.30 a.m., she was leaving her apartment in downtown Seattle for an early morning jog when he approached her. He knocked her to her knees and she felt pain at her throat. She rose to her feet and ran away. A short time later, when she returned to her apartment building, she saw him standing at the corner of her building, staring at her and masturbating. Total creep. On March 25th, 2004, after deliberating for three days, the jury found him guilty and he was later given a sentence by Judge Sharon Armstrong of 37 years in prison, exceeding the maximum amount because of the particularly painful injuries that Zapata suffered. An appellate court overturned that sentence in 2005 based on a previous U.S. Supreme Court decision, and he was later resentenced to serve 36 years. So basically, they tried to appeal his case and get like a lighter sentence and the judge was pretty much like oh you don't want to do 37 years how about 36 you know like they were like you're not gonna get like five years like you think you are for this dude it was very gratifying bradshaw says of the guilty verdict the friends family and band members who were in the courtroom that's what they'd been waiting to hear but you realize when a measure of justice has been achieved there's also the sadness that sets in you realize that it's not going to bring her back Mia Zapata was laid to rest at Cave Hill Cemetery in her hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. In the aftermath of her murder, friends created a self-defense group called Home Alive. Home Alive organized benefit concerts and released albums with the participation of many bands, including Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Heart, and the Presidents of the United States of America. The Home Alive's group group instructors offered a range of courses from anger management and the use of pepper spray to martial arts. And I don't think that their organization is around anymore, but something similar to that that I can think of off the top of my head would be Not Today Motherfucker, uh, named after, there was a woman, I think she was a Seattle woman, she got attacked in a park up north in the park bathroom, but she was able to fight the guy off and she yelled, Not Today Motherfucker, at him, which is like, I love that energy. Like, that's such such a badass. Um, But I, I follow him on Facebook and I've seen them post, like, little courses and stuff so if that's something that you're interested in that might be worth checking out joan jett also recorded an album with the surviving members of the gits called evil stig which is gits live backwards featuring a track called go home with a music video featuring a woman being stalked who is able to defend herself from her attacker 
In 2005, a documentary, The Gits Movie, was produced about Mia Zapata's life, The Gits, and the Seattle music scene. Its first showing occurred at the Seattle International Film Festival in May of that same year. Another version of the film appeared two years later at the 2007 South by Southwest Film Festival. The final cut of the film was released theatrically in over 20 North American cities on July 7th, 2008, the 15th memorial anniversary of Zapata's death. The Git's second album, Enter the Conquering Chicken, was released in 1994, followed by archival releases over the years. In 2015, the surviving Gits reunited for the first time in 20 years with Rachel Flotard of Vis Queen on vocals to perform at a benefit show for Hammerbox bassist James Atkins, who had cancer before he died the following year. Today, her friends would prefer that Zapata be remembered more for her life and music than for her murder. So if you take anything from this, it's that the Gits are a kick-ass band, Mia, Mia made some great music while she was here on Earth, and everyone should go listen to it because it's great, like... I'm angry and I'm driving in my car and I'm angsty and it's a little bit cloudy weather, you know, like it's, it's, it's really raw and it's, I don't know. I'm just, I, I like them a lot. So thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. Follow the Facebook and Instagram at Olympia Oddities podcast. If you want to see some uh, pictures and I'm going to be posting some music videos, some of the bands mentioned in this um, episode. Oh, so follow those if you want to, and until next time, friends.